We're glad you could make it tonight, but most of all, we're glad that the Lord can be here with us. He promised where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. I think we have two or three here tonight. But it really is a wonderful thing to be able to appreciate the Lord's presence. We don't come because certain other people are there, or because a certain number of people are there, or because certain other things are done or said to our liking. We come in the first place because we have the promised presence of the Lord. He promises to be here with us and to meet with us. He said it. And, of course, only a spiritually minded person can discern the Lord's presence and appreciate it. So I hope you do that tonight. Now let's come to the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9 verses. The word of the Lord says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help, those, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for this opportunity we have to be together, for this place that you have provided, for each person who's able to come. We pray for those who, for one reason or another, were not able to come, that you would also be with each one of them and give them a special blessing. We pray especially for ourselves now as we look into your word, because we know that the human mind alone and human logic and human intellect alone are not sufficient to know the things of God. It is the Spirit of God who reveals the things of God, who takes the things of Christ and shows them unto us. And so we come and ask that far beyond the human messenger, we might be able to discern your voice speaking to us through the Scriptures. We invite you and we hope that you will speak to us and touch our lives tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to come back to verse 1. Last night we used verse 1 of this chapter as a conclusion to the things we were looking at at the end of chapter 3. But since verse 1 is one of those pivotal verses, there is a sense in which it really goes with chapter 4. And so we're going to take it as our first verse in our consideration of tonight's topic, which is, how to be a steadfast Christian. How to be a steady Christian. How to stand fast 
and not waver and not turn back and not give up and not be like so many people who have some kind of experience at some point in life where they said they tried Christianity or they tried to believe or they tried this or they tried that. And then they turn back to their old life. He says, brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. This is what true Christians are called to do. Nobody's called to try Jesus. Americans are great, and I can say this, we're living outside the United States for so many years, you, you begin to see our country the way people in the rest of the world see it. We're, this is a great country for fads. People get onto fads. Things get popular and they go across the country. Now everybody's got to wear it or say it or go do it. And there was a time when everybody had to wear this little lapel pin that said, Try Jesus. You know, like going to Baskin Robbins. You know, get, get one of those little spoons. You know, and you really want to try uh, a big bite, but they just give you this little spoon with, I don't know, Gorilla Vanilla or, or <laughs> what, I don't know, to even know what the flavors are anymore because it's been so long. The last one I remember 20 years ago was Gorilla Vanilla. So I don't know if it's still there or not. But anyway, they give you this little bitty spoon and this little bitty taste and that's it. And there are people that's all they want of Jesus. They just want to try him. They just want to have a little taste. See if they like it. We already talked about that last night, although we could go back and go right over all that same ground again, couldn't we? The Lord didn't call anybody to try him. He called people to follow him. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And it starts right there with self-denial. Not with self-pleasing and self-satisfaction, but with self-denial. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the Lord calls believers, as we see here and in other places in the New Testament, he says to stand fast, to be firm and steady, to take a position. The position marked by Scripture. To take their faith in Christ, their belief, their trust in what He says in His Word. His teachings. To follow them and to stay fast and steady in them. Christianity, the Christianity of the Bible, doesn't know anything about true Christians who are here today and gone tomorrow. There are people who are steady in the faith of the Lord. And so when He says this, these words that He uses here in chapter 4 and verse 1 are words that you can only use with true believers. Only a true believer in Jesus Christ can stand fast in the Lord. He's going to talk to them here in verses 1 to 3 about how to resolve internal conflicts, conflicts and problems between brothers, or as the case is before us tonight in the Scripture, between sisters. That's one of the things that discourages people. One of the things that, for the reasons for which some people... Uh, waver or become discouraged or throw in the towel, quit. They have some conflict and they don't know how to resolve it. Or they don't have the desire to resolve it. And so they just retreat, withdraw, escape. He has something to say to two women, Yodias and Syntyche. He implores them. He beseeches them. He calls upon them to be of the same mind. And then he's going to turn and he's going to talk to them in verses 4 to 9 about another thing that's a great cause of discouragement and wavering. And that is for the battle for what goes on in your mind. Guard your mind. And so you could say here we have in this, 
in the first three verses, uh, commands and exhortations to resolve internal conflicts. And then secondly, to guard your mind. Be very careful with your mind and your thought life. That's where the battle is. So let's come back then to the first verses, the first three verses, and see what we have here as he turns to the believers to talk to them about these things that stand in the way of being steadfast. And notice how he speaks to them when he begins here. He calls them three things in verse 1. Believers are, number one, he says, brethren, my brethren. Paul didn't speak about them as his converts, his project. He spoke about them as his brethren. That's a biblical word. It means people who have the same father, people who are in the same family. And that's exactly the way the Apostle Paul spoke of them. And that's the way we should think of other people who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The name is Brethren. And you'll see the other names used here in this section. We have them as we go through the Scriptures. You come down to the end of verse uh, of the chapter, verse 21, for example. He says, Salute every or greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. There it comes again. Brethren. But there he uses also the word saint. Very seldom in the New Testament do we find the word Christian. Christian is the word that the unsaved people in Antioch called the Christians, called the believers. It says they were first called Christians in Antioch. The people out there on the street who saw them and heard them talking about Jesus Christ, they called them Christians. Maybe confusing it with some other name, but since they, they, uh, there were slaves who were named something that was very similar to that. But probably because they heard them talk so much about Christ. They said, these are the ones that follow Christ. And that's the name they gave them. But the name that they use among themselves in the scripture is brethren and saints and disciples and believers. And just like what we talked about the other day with regard to pastors and elders and bishops, which are three words that describe the same group of men. They just emphasize different facets of their life, their ministry. In this way, we say about Christians, they are believers, they are saints, they are disciples, and they are brethren. They are brothers and sisters in the same family. And this is the word he uses here. My brethren. Of course, to be able to say that, you have to be born in the family, don't you? You can't be a brother if you don't have the same family. And so, I think so often, how they pray the what they call the Lord's Prayer, which isn't really the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Not the Lord's Prayer, it's the disciples' prayer. The Lord taught the disciples to pray that way. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17, where the Lord prayed what we call His high priestly prayer, His intercessory prayer, where, where before He went to the cross, He prayed for those men, those disciples with whom He had spent His life in, in ministry in public. He prayed for them. That was the Lord's Prayer. But they call it the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father they call it in Spanish, the Padre Nuestro. And uh, they begin to pray it. And everybody likes to pray the Lord's Prayer. It seems right around the world. And I had a Jesuit priest come to me one time and he said, Well, there might be some things we can't agree on. There were quite a few and they'd already come up. And he said, But at least we can agree on that. This, come over to the Jesuit residence and we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't even do that. Because with the first words of the Lord's Prayer, we have a problem. Because you start praying and you say, Padre nuestro que estás en los cielos, our Father who art in heaven. 
Our what? What was that you said? Our Father? Have you been born again? Do you believe you need to be born again? How can you call God your Father? Call Him your Creator. Call Him the Maker. Call Him your Judge because that's what He's going to be. But I'll tell you one thing He isn't if you've never been born again. He's not your Father. And there is nothing more ridiculous, absurd, and useless than for a person who is not a true believer, never been born again, never come to the foot of the cross, never placed all of their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, never seen themselves as a sinner headed for hell who needed to be saved. And they came to Christ and they said, Save me, forgive me, Lord. I know you died for me. It was for me you died. I trust in you to save me. They've never done that. They're going to call God their Father. No, sir. Not God your father, and not the others your brothers. My brethren is a word reserved for true believers. It's a wonderful thing to be in the family, isn't it? Be in the family of God, and to be able to call other people that word, which is the privilege of everyone who has been born again, and knows for sure that if he were to die tonight, he would go to heaven. Do you know that for sure? What would happen to you if you died tonight? One millisecond after your death, where would you be? We know where your body would be, but where would you be, the real you? Isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to say, I go to be with my Father, with my Lord, with my brethren. He calls them this. The apostle, he didn't believe in this. We talked about this last night. He didn't believe in this artificial distinction of clergy and laity and trying to maintain the distance and the separation. They were his brothers. He loved them. He spent time with them. He, he longed for their company. And he says it here, doesn't he? Dearly beloved and longed for. And that's the second term he uses about them. He doesn't just call them their, his brethren. He says, you're the ones I love and long to be with, he says. And we had that way back in chapter 1, didn't we? He says, It is in verse 7 of chapter 1, even as it is fitting for me to think this, or it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. For God is my record, verse 8 of chapter 1, how greatly I long for you with the tender affections of Jesus Christ, some versions say. And I was telling the men uh, Friday, that word in the King James is the word bowels. That sounds kind of strange today. But it comes from a Greek word that means that. It means the the innards, the inside, that I long for you. It's not a superficial affection. It's not hypocritical. The Bible says, let love be without hypocrisy. It's not a painted on smile and not a memorized phrase and and a traditional but uninterested handshake. It's to receive somebody with all of the love that comes from deep down inside of you. That's what it means. Deep down inside love. And that's why they use that word. And that's why in the old days, in the old country, they'd ask people how they were. They'd ask them about their innards. They'd say, how's your liver? And they still say that in Spain, when something really upsets somebody on the inside, they say, ask Emilio what they say. They say, me pone del hígado. It gets into my liver. It affects my liver. That means, boy, that really gets me. Or we say in English, it it galls me. Where's that come from? Right next door. 
uh, in Farsi, when they, in the language of Iran, when they take a little baby in their arms and they love the little baby and they call him all kinds of sweet names. One of the names they call him is Golden Liver. Golden Liver. And the first time they, I heard them say, and they translated, I said, gross. Golden Liver? And they said, well, you say sweetheart. I said, well, I guess I never really thought about it. <laughs> well, that's what Paul is saying. He says, you're my brethren. And he says, I don't mean that in a cold and formal and professional way. You're not my project. You're my brethren. You're not my converts. You're my brethren. You're not my clients. You're my brethren. You're not my supporters. You're my brethren, he says. And I long for you. I love you, he says. Dearly beloved and longed for. And if the great Apostle Paul felt and expressed such a love for these people, how much more should we? This is what we really need between ourselves and among ourselves. And we talked about this when we were way back in chapter 1 about Frank and sincere expressions of love and Christian affection one to another. How important it is in the world we live in to know that we have a family here and that we love one another, that we care for one another, and we long for one another, and we like to come and be with one another. And not just here, we like to go and visit one another, and we prefer to spend time with one another. Dearly beloved and longed for, he says. That sounds like the commuter church to you? That sounds to me like a family, doesn't it? And then he calls him, like we said last night, my joy and crown. He knew when he got to heaven he was going to see there the fruit of his labors on earth. He wasn't going to go to heaven like that hymn says, must I go and empty-handed? Must I go to heaven empty-handed? And those other hymns where the Lord asked the question, he says, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? And Paul knew when he got to heaven, he was going to see there the fruit of his labors. People from different places in the world where he had preached the gospel. Yes, places where he had even suffered and been beaten and thrown into jail like in Philippi. Was he worried about that? Was he going to go to heaven to have a cry on your shoulder session and complain and reminisce about all the bad treatment they received in different places? He wasn't even thinking about that. In heaven, they don't remember those things. And that's why the Bible says, in heaven, when we get to heaven, it says, the Lord shall wipe away every tear. All of that kind of stuff is gone. No more crying. No more pain. What a wonderful place. And to have there people who are cause for your joy to say, look at this. I could have spent my life reading the newspaper and mowing the lawn. But... I shared my faith. I proclaimed the gospel. And look, here's other people who believe. They're in my family. They're my brothers. They heard the word of God. They trusted in the Lord and they're here. And I wonder what some people are going to do in heaven. Going to have any joy? Anybody see their face and say, look, look a there, like we say down in the south. Look a there, there's so-and-so. Long lost friend. A brother, a sister in Christ. Someone saved. Someone encouraged. Someone that you lived and loved and lived with and loved in the church and worked together in the church and studied and learned together and there they are. Someone whose life you were able to help or maybe you, your life was helped by them. And there's that joyful meeting in heaven when saints see one another and they look back at this earth and they think, 
Wasn't it silly all the things we worried about? We'll come to that later. Isn't it wonderful how we trusted the Lord? And so many people are going to say, thank you, brother. Thank you, sister, for sharing the word with me. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for encouraging me along the way. And some other people are just going to be standing around maybe saying, well, I guess there isn't any television here. Because they never really caught on in this life. So what the Christian life is all about. Church for them, like we said last night, the church for them was just like an activity you go to once a week. They weren't followers. They weren't imitators. They weren't interested in true, living New Testament Christianity. They were interested in some religious belief, some philosophical tenet that they could say they accepted and went and listened and admired and and punched their time card once or twice a week. That was it. But people who are followers of Christ can't wait to get to heaven to see Him. And people who are followers of Christ love to be with other followers of Christ. Isn't it wonderful to be able to say in heaven, there's going to be joy and there's going to be crowns. Crowns are fruit. Crowns are results. Crowns are rewards that will be received. There will be cause for even more rejoicing. Why would I want to miss out on all of that? And he says, I already know what you are to me. You're my joy and crown. Isn't that great? And he says, stand fast, beloved. Don't waver. He said that to a lot of other believers, too. He said it to the Ephesians, didn't he, in chapter 6 of Ephesians. And he told them to stand fast, to put on all the armor of God, and to stand firm, to stand fast. Kind of hard to do. Stand on a battlefield with no armor. Go out on the battlefield in your birthday suit. Go out on the battlefield in your pajamas and stand fast, unprotected, undefended. He says, put on all the armor of God that you may stand fast. Stand firm. In the evil day. To the, to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians he wrote. And in that great chapter on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When he comes to the end of the chapter. He concludes it this way. Therefore my beloved brethren. Be ye steadfast. That means stand fast. Be ye steadfast. Unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Inasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain. In the Lord. And so this is the call in the New Testament. For Christians to stand firm. And he says that in this sense as an introductory remark to what he's about to say to these two sisters. Somehow, we don't know how, we deduce that it was probably through Epaphroditus. Because way back in chapter 2 we had Epaphroditus who came to Paul bearing the, the offering, the, the gift from the Philippian believers. And who found him in Rome and gave it to him and, of course, brought news of things in the church to him. And he didn't say when he got to, to Paul, well, there are, the church is doing fine. There's a few little problems here and there, but I can't tell you anything about them because I wouldn't want to betray a confidence. You know, he says, well, there's Yodia and Cindy, and they're kind of a little... There's, they're, they're not fighting, but there's some tension there. They're not denying the faith. They're not fighting each other, but there's some problem there. Uh, They're starting to go different ways. There's something there, and Paul is concerned. And so now he says, he doesn't say, I command as an apostle with all of my authority in the name of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't go that route. Could he have done it? You bet your bottom dollar he could have done it. But he didn't want to do it that way. See, that's a, a sign of our own hardness and stubbornness when somebody has to say, okay, now you have to do this. 
when it comes down to that because I said so and I'm the boss. Paul doesn't go that way. He's talking to believers. And with true believers who are sensitive to the word of the Lord, we should be able to say, I implore you. I ask you. I beseech you. I I call upon you. Think about this. Don't you think you ought to do this? Wouldn't this be better? And he's asking them kindly. And you might say, as we say in Spanish, with education. That means with courtesy. He's asking them. I beseech, I implore, Eudius and Syndicate. He names them. He lets them know that he knows about them. And he doesn't go into it. He doesn't say, ah, because I heard from Epaphroditus, you guys think you're hiding from me. But I know you did this and this and this. And I know what she said and what she said about what she said and what she said about what he said about what she said. He doesn't go into all of that. That's not necessary. He simply says, I beseech, I implore Yodius and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Oh, how full this epistle to the Philippians is of things about the mind. You know, they call this the epistle of joy. I gave you that to the men anyway in the introduction. And it's true. But the more I look at it, the more I see other things besides joy. I'm glad for the joy that is there. And I agree that it's there. And it's one of the key Uh, phrases and themes you find in the book. But have you ever thought about this epistle as the epistle of the mind? The epistle of the mind, the epistle of the thoughts, of how we think and reason and value and esteem. That's what this epistle is about also. Come with me back. Let's do a little quick review, just quickly so you get the idea what I'm talking about. Way back in chapter 1, in verse 7, he says, Even as it is fitting for me to think this way, of you all. And right away, Paul clues them in to this. There is a right way and a wrong way to think about people. You see, we don't just run, let our minds run loose like wild horses galloping over the countryside with no fence to close them in anywhere. And whatever happens to come into our mind and whatever we think and whatever we feel is okay. There are right ways to think and there are wrong ways to think. And he says, it is right, it's fitting, it's right for me to think this way of you all. Because I love you. And so when you love people, your thoughts should follow that. They should conform to your love for them. And he says, this is the way I think about you because I love you. But then he goes further. He doesn't just talk about his mind. He talks about their mind. Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. He says, Uh, halfway through the verse, he says that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. With one mind, he says, one spirit and one mind. Now, this makes that uh, crowd of people who like to have a lot of uh, freedom and a lot of variety for everyone to think and feel however they want to. They don't like this kind of talk. That Christianity, as we said last night, calls for people to imitate and to follow the example, not just the teaching, but the example of the apostles. Be ye imitators of me. That there is a mindset that we should have. There is a way of thinking that we should adopt. And not just adopt it in an artificial sense. It should come to be ours. He says in chapter 2, let this mind be in you. Let it in. You've got to let it in. 
see. And here he says, one mind. In chapter 2 and verse 2 he says, Fulfill my joy being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. There it is again. And then in chapter 2 and verse 3 he says, in the end of the, in the middle of the verse, But in lowliness of mind... Let each esteem, that is, think about and value the others better than themselves. How to think. He's talking about the mind. And in chapter 2, verse verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you. There is a Christ-like way to think that guides and governs our behavior. And he says, let it be in you. And the scripture never calls upon us to do things that are impossible. If God tells us to do it, there is grace from God to follow through on it. But the trouble that most of us have, and the trouble especially in Western countries that we have, where everybody's always emphasizing uh, independence and freedom and individual rights and all of these things, they come to Christianity and they try to drag all of that in with them and say, oh, well, but we can't put everybody in the same mold. You say, why not? You got a better mold than God made? He's not saying everybody's got to have the same color hair and the same size feet. Let's not be ridiculous. He's talking about having the same mind. He's talking about what we love and what we hate, what we think about and what we reject, what we refuse to think about, what we value and what we don't value, what our priorities are and what they aren't. Our mind. What pleases us and entertains us and what doesn't. Our mind. What we love and what we don't. Our mind and our heart. That citadel of the body from where all the feelings and will and decisions come. Let this mind be in you, he says. Verse 20 of chapter 2. I have no man like-minded. No one like-minded, Paul said. Except Timothy, of course, uh, implied, because that's who he's talking about. He says, I'll send him to you, in verse 19, for I have no other, no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. There's a man who had learned to think like the apostle, who had learned to let this mind be in him that also was in Christ Jesus, to care for, to esteem other people, to love the things that God loves, to think about the things that God wants us to think about. He said, no other man. Everybody seeks their own. I said, boy, that wasn't written for the first century. That was written for the 21st century. And that's the problem with professing Christianity today. People think they can just... Believe in Jesus Christ in some intellectual way and have their little stamp. I believed in Him and be a card-carrying Christian. And then they just go out and live however they want to. That's not what the Bible is talking about. Everybody seek their own. And people are so full of themselves and their plans and their desires and their dreams and realizing themselves and fulfilling themselves. That's not what God made us for. God made us so that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we might do all to the glory of God. And if you don't like to live that way, don't fool yourself into thinking you're going to heaven. Because in heaven, everything that we do is going to be for the glory of God. Isn't it better to start getting used to that right now? Whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatever you do. And who does it perfectly down here? 
That's not the question. The question is, is that your goal and desire and aim? Does it even interest you to live for the will of God? Are you so afraid to give up your own life, your own dreams, your own plans, your own likes and dislikes, and to put it into the hands of God and say, I want to live however you want me to, Lord. I want to think however you want me to. I want you to guide my life. Even before I know what you're going to tell me, I trust you. You trust God like that? Or has he got to show it all to you? The five-year, the ten-year plan, the twenty-year plan. He got to show it all to you and get your little seal of approval at the end before he can proceed with the plans. I trust the Lord. And you know what? I thank him. I don't have to know everything about the future. I leave that in his hands. I don't need to worry about all of that. And most people spend too much time worrying about things that never happen anyway. It's better just to leave it all in the hands of the Lord. One man met a woman on the street, or a woman came up to him in the street of New York, and she said, Want me to tell you your future? Five dollars, I'll tell you the future. Read you your future. He said, Two things, lady. First of all, I don't believe you can do it. I wouldn't give you five dollars even if it was my last five. Or he said, And the other thing, even if you could do it, I wouldn't want to know it. He said, In fact, I would pay you every bit of money I have to keep you from telling me. If you could do it, I don't want to know my future. I just leave that in the hands of the Lord. First of all, you don't know it. And second, if you did, I'd pay you not to tell me. I just want to trust the Lord and walk in the light he gives me and live the life he's given me and not have to worry about things that are going to happen to me in the future. God will be with me. The scripture says, as your days are, so shall your strength be. Don't worry about that. As we say, cross that bridge when you get to it. I have no one like-minded but Timothy. What would Paul say if he were here tonight? The scripture, the book of Philippians, is teaching us to be like-minded, to have one mind, to think the same, to evaluate the same, to feel the same, to prioritize the same, to love the same. Would Paul be able to say that? And is there anyone he would have to say, well, in your case, we have a little work to do. And would you be willing to do that work? He had that complaint. And if it was a problem way back in apostolic times, just think what it's like in our time. In chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And we talked about that last night. In verse 16, he says, Walk by the same rule. Be of the same mind. In chapter 3, verse 19, he says, he's talking about the enemies of, of the cross. And he says, They are the enemies of the cross, he says, who set their mind on earthly things. Look, even when he talks about the enemies of the cross, he talks about what they're thinking about. What do they set their mind on? All of their thoughts about things in this world are going to disappear when the earth, the scripture says, the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Anybody building on the earth things that are going to be burned up? This is like building sandcastles. Go out to the beach. And build a sandcastle and the high tide comes in and wipes it all away. And that beach is just as smooth as it was before you ever went and visited. And some people are going to go into eternity that way. They look back and they had a lot of business. And they had a lot of education. And they had a lot of activity. And they owned a lot of things. And they were members of a lot of clubs. And they had a lot to do in this life. But none of it, none of it, none of it went into eternity. Empty-handed. And they look back on the beach of what was their life and they don't even see footprints. The waves of eternity have wiped it all away. And nothing is left. Nothing. 
the enemies of the cross who set their mind on earthly things. The scripture says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of the life, all that is in the world is not of the Father, is of the world. And the world passes away. And it's lust or it's desires. But he who does the will of God abides forever. But we listen to these warnings. And we read these teachings in the scripture. And many people it just goes in one side and out the other. God is not going to change his mind. Let me just say this. With all the love and friendliness but firmness that I know how to say it. You're going to have to change yours. God is not going to change his mind. Not now. Not ever. You're going to run into that at some point in the future. It'd be better to change your mind right now. And you know what? You know what the word for changing your mind is in the New Testament? When he says, fill in the blank and believe the gospel. What is that word? Repent. It means to rethink to change your mind, to turn around and go in the other direction. A change of mind that results in a, in a change in behavior. And I told you, didn't you, about that old, old flyer, a friend of mine who flew to, was a flight instructor in World War II. He's with the Lord now, but in those days he flew and he taught other pilots. And he said one day he had a pilot, they had a front cockpit and a back cockpit. And uh, he was sitting in the back and the student was in the front and they're flying along and he's teaching him cross-country navigation. He said, here they go, flying along, flying along and Pretty soon he says to the student, all right, Lieutenant, I want you to alter course 180 degrees. Now, how many people in here know how to alter course 180 degrees? I heard some people say at one time, uh, do a 360 and let's get out of here. <laughs> let's see now. <clears throat> exactly how does that work? Do a 360 and let's get out of here. He said, alter course 180 degrees. It means turn exactly around in the opposite direction. He said, they flew and they flew and they flew and they flew. And he said, I wonder if we're going to run out of gas before he does anything. But he made up his mind. He wasn't going to say anything. He just waited. And pretty soon the student, he saw him. He's watching over his shoulder. And he sees the student reach forward to the facing of the compass and unscrew it. There are two screws, one on each side. He unscrewed the facing with all the numbers on it. He rotated the facing of the compass around. 180 degrees, and he screwed it back in tight, and he just kept flying in the same direction. Who knows what he was thinking? I was a flight instructor, and you really wonder sometimes what's going on inside the helmet of the other guy. <laughs> and he says, so he says in the intercom, he says, what have you done, Lieutenant? He says, sir, I have altered course 180 degrees. He said, no, you haven't. You just changed your point of reference 180 degrees. You're still going in the same direction you were before. Look outside. See, that's not repentance. You change your point of reference 180 degrees. To repent is to turn around and go the other way. It's to stop and think about it and say, this is bad. I don't want to go where this is leading me. i got to turn around and go the other way. And that's the way people are. They change their point of reference. Now on Sunday morning, they go to church. Now they listen to a Christian CD. And they don't smoke as much as they did before. They're down to a pack a week. 
put in there whatever you want to. So many things. They just change their point of view. But the real person on the inside, that person, how they think, how they evaluate things, what they appreciate, what their priorities are, what their loves are, that real person has never felt the cross. They have never died. They have never come to the end of themselves. They have never rethought it and turned around and gone the other way. And they can't believe the gospel because they haven't repented. They haven't rethought it. You can't add the gospel to your life. God will not be added to your life. No, sir. He'll be Lord of all. It's like we were talking about this afternoon at Mike and Jenny's table. There's a little booklet called All or Nothing. And those are God's terms. Take them or leave them. Those are His terms. Rethink it. Change your mind. The enemies of the cross set their mind on earthly things. All those things that are going to burn up. And so he comes to chapter 4, and just like we said, he says to Yodi and Syndicate, this thing about being of the same mind is not just repenting and believing the gospel, but it, it even includes what is the cure for conflicts and strifes in human relationships. To be of the same mind. Who has to give in then? Who has to give in then? Like the two goats standing on a log over a chasm, and one's trying to go one way and one's trying to go the other, neither one of them wants to to bend down and let the other one walk over it. So they just stand there and look at each other. Who has to give in? Well, it says, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. So you know what? You might have to both give in. Well, let him go first. Well, let her go first. You know what? I'd like to go to God and say, I went first, Lord. I wouldn't like to be the one that said, I made the other one go first. Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus. Lowliness of mind. So you know what one of those two goats finally did? Since there was no way to turn around on the log and go back. One of those two goats finally crouched down and let the other goat walk over him and go on his way. And then he stood up and went on his way. Lowliness of mind. Oh, how we hate that. We don't want to be the one to bend down and let the other one walk. All our pride gets in the way. But you see, if it's the mind of Christ, we ought to be in a big hurry to get down there. Lowliness of mind. Yodia Syndiki. And then he says, see, it's the same mind in the Lord. He doesn't say, I beseech Yodia, agree with Syndiki. Or I beseech Syndiki, agree with Yodia. He says, the same mind in the Lord. That's the key. Because God doesn't have two minds. God doesn't have two opinions. It's all right here in His Word. What He's revealed to us. He's not asking us for a consensus approach to Christianity. He's saying we need to have His mind on things. We need to go back to His Word and see it clear from what He's given to us. And agree with God and then we agree with one another. Well, those were needed words for those women in that church back then, and they're needed words for women today. And I know nobody here ever needs to hear this, but I'm going to say this because it's, you know, it's going on CD, and people in other places outside of San Ramon will hear it that might need it. You know, where, uh, where sisters sometimes have, have envy. One sister envies another one. Or where they have competitiveness, or where they, they, they compete for position 
even to sit beside somebody that they think is important or is a, a key person or, or to be in the right group or where they might have disagreements or where they might go off and say, well, she didn't speak to me today. You see that? She walked in and she walked out and she never said hello to me. And she comes real dressed up one Sunday and they say, oh, look at that, how dressed up. And the next Sunday she doesn't come very dressed up and she says, oh, look how she comes today. And the men in Spain have a saying, Las mujeres escriben la partitura y los hombres cantan la música. Las mujeres escriben la partitura y los hombres cantan. The women write the music and the men sing it. He knew, the apostle knew that disagreements, it can happen between brothers also, but here he's talking about sisters, so we're not going to run from it and hide from it. I'm not ashamed to tell you that these problems that he talked about are real and they have ruined entire churches, all because two women, two sisters, couldn't agree. And they fought and they quibbled and they quarreled and one at home talked to her husband all the time at the table or in the bedroom and she made comments on what she liked and what she didn't like. And then he went to the church and he said, well, we got to do this. And he said exactly what she said. He heard it at home all the time and he went to the church and he sang it. She wrote the music and he sang the song. And everybody thought it was him coming up with that idea, but she was pulling the strings all the time. Don't tell me it doesn't happen. And it's worse than that. It's not just problems between sisters, but there are women who keep their husbands from getting saved. And there are women who drag their husbands down. And that's why it's so important in First Timothy when it talks about elders and deacons. It says, and their wives, the women, concerned about the spiritual condition of the sisters. It is so important. And he says, I implore you, be of the same mind. And then he says, now, yoke fellow. This is somebody in the assembly in the church there in Philippi. In verse 3, he says, you help him. Don't just stand there and smile. Don't just stand there and bite your fingernails and worry about it. He says, go help them. Go help them. I beseech you. I implore you. I entreat you. True yoke fellow. True companion. Help these women. Sometimes they can't sort it out by themselves. Sometimes they need somebody to come in and help them. But he says, help them. Don't throw gas on the fire. Help them. Not help one of them against the other one. He doesn't say take sides. He says help them be of the same mind in the Lord. Open that Bible and let's let everybody agree with the Lord on what he said. And that's what he calls them to do. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Help them. Take hold of them. Help them solve the problem. These women labored with me in the gospel. He's sure these women are believers. But true believers have difficulties. They have problems and conflicts sometimes. The life, the Christian life is not free of that. The difference between in the world and in the church is that in the church there's help and there's deliverance and there's forgiveness and there's love. And in the world it just turns into war and countries have gone to war because of those kind of things sometimes. With Clement, he says, help them and help with Clement. Or they labored with me in the gospel with Clement and others of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. These are true believers. These women worked with Paul in the gospel. And there's room. There's a place where women should work. There's a real ministry for sisters that God calls them to. And the apostle recognized that he esteemed them and valued them as his co-laborers, his co-workers in the gospel. 
to testify and to witness. And if they didn't know what to say or couldn't answer the question, take the person to the apostle and let him answer. But he says, they labored with me. They were workers in the gospel. And I thank the Lord for every sister who witnesses, who speaks to people about Christ, who gives them a track, who invites them to the meeting, who shares her testimony, who prays for her friends and seeks to see her friends come to know Christ. And I wonder about people who don't show any interest at all in seeing their friends and their family come to know Christ. In fact, some people, you can't even see much interest in them in coming to meetings, much less in that anyone else would come. But when we love the Lord and when we know the gospel, one of our great desires is to see other people come to know him. And he says, they labored with me in the gospel. And other fellow laborers, he says, whose names are in the book of life. What? You mean you can know if someone's name is in the book of life? You know what the book of life is, don't you? In Revelation, it talks about the book of life. In fact, this is the only place it's named outside of the book of Revelation. There it's mentioned a bunch of times. But in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, he says at the end, the last uh, verse in the chapter, And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The book of life is that book in which the names of all people who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior are written. In chapter 21, and verse 27, it says, And there will in no way enter into it anything that defiles, or whatever is an abomination or makes a lie, but those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we used to sing that old hymn, Is your name written there on the page white and fair? Talking about the Lamb's book of life. Is your name in the book of life? Only those people that have come to the Lord Jesus and put their personal faith in Him. The book of life is not a book of church attenders. The book of life is not a book of social or philosophical Christians or ethical Christians like we were talking about last night. The book of life is a book that God has in heaven in whose names are written the, the, all of those people who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And none of those who haven't. I'd be worried about that if I wasn't sure. When the disciples went out and, and the Lord sent them out and they, said, they cast out demons and they were rejoicing because they, he'd, been, he'd given them miraculous powers... And they came back rejoicing about that. He says, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you know for sure? I don't mean hope so, think so. Do you know for sure that your name is written in heaven? In that book of life where only the true believers' names are written. You can fool me. I'm just a man. You can fool me and you can fool all of these people here. But it's not going to do you one ounce of good in eternity when you face God. Because God has the book. The book of life. And if your name's not in it, it doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter how much you earned. It doesn't matter how long you lived. It doesn't matter anything else about you. If your name is not in that book, He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Awful words. But these are wonderful words whose name is in, whose names are in the book of life. Paul knew that they were saved. He knew 
because their lives, the way they lived, matched their profession of faith. He knew because they had faith and works. He knew that they were really believers. And you can still know that today. I don't give two cents for this cheap version imitation of Christianity today that says nobody can know if anybody's saved or not. The Bible is full of tests of life. The Bible is full of evidences. It says, if any man say, I know him and keep not his work, he is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He says, by this do we know the children of God and the children of the devil. What's he talking about if we can't know? Why would he say we can know and by this we know? He says, will you know, O vain man, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Do you want to know it? Do you want to know what a real Christian is? The scripture gives it to us. How wonderful to be able to say, by the grace of God, by nothing I've done, but by what Christ did for me, my name is in the book of life. It doesn't deserve to be there. You see, heaven is that wonderful society where the only requirement to enable you to get in is to not be worthy. I don't deserve it. Jesus did it for me. So these are the fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. And Paul says, now, he turns to them and he talks to them about another problem. He says, now rejoice, brethren. Leaving that problem behind, let's come to the other problem. The problem of the mind. The problem of the thoughts. The problem that so many people struggle with. And he says, brethren, twice in one verse, he says, rejoice in the Lord. We're never called upon to rejoice in all of our circumstances. You can't always rejoice in your circumstances, in what's happening around you in life, but you can always rejoice in the Lord. He says to be of the same mind in the Lord, and he says to rejoice in the Lord. Whatever else happens, this you have if you are a believer can never be taken away from you. You belong to the Lord. You're his, and no power on earth or hell can touch that. Isn't that wonderful? If God be for us, the apostle says in Romans chapter 8, who can be against us? Nobody's ever been able to answer that question. If you belong to the Lord, the Lord is for you. He's not against you. And let the devil raise all of his armies. Let the whole world turn against you. One plus God is a majority. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. Your gentleness. To treat people in a courteous and moderate and respectful way, in a kind way, in a gentle way. Even the great apostle. With all the strong stands that he took and all the the words that he preached, he was able to treat people with gentleness. That slave girl walked along behind them and he went through Philippi. And she was crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God. And it says she did it for many days. Paul didn't turn around and turn on her right away the first time she said anything. Shut up! That's not the way he did things. Gentleness. He tolerated it. He waited. And finally he turned to her and he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. You don't have to be gentle with them, with the demons. He was being gentle with the girl, being patient with her. And she was delivered. And he's gentle with the saints. 
When he was delivered from the prison and he went back to the saints, what did he do? It says he comforted them. He didn't go back to them and say, Oh, look at what they did to me now. I'm a Roman citizen. They shouldn't have put stripes on my back. we got to get a committee up here and, and appeal to the Congress and make the governor take all those people and cut their heads off because they can't treat Roman citizens like this. All he did was go back and comfort the brethren. And he left and he went and he preached the same gospel in the city of Thessalonica. He was gentle. The Lord was, you know, the Lord could take small children into his arms and hold them. And when the time was right, he could make a whip of small cords and clean out the temple. But he was gentle in his treatment of other people. He says, let it be known to others. See, don't just consider yourself a gentle person. Let the other people consider you. Let it be seen to them. Let it be known to them. Is that what they see? And he gives them this hope and this word of advice to motivate them. He says, now let everyone see your gentleness. Let everyone see it because the Lord is at hand. When I was growing up, I think I told you this story before. But that's what happens when you start getting older. You tell the same stories over and over again. So you just smile and act like you never heard it. (laughs) And our parents would go out somewhere for an evening with their friends or something. And they would tell us, we'll be back at 10 o'clock or we'll be back at 930, whatever it was. And they'd leave supper prepared, and we'd eat, the three of us boys, and uh, eventually we'd get into some kind of quarrel or foolishness over something, and pretty soon we'd be running from one end of the house to the other, chasing each other, punching each other, uh, run through the house and grab the chair and pull it around behind you, run around around the table, and everything is a big mess. Oh, boy, they're coming back at 10 o'clock, about quarter to 10. We made our peace with one another, and we worked like you ain't never seen to get that house all clean because the parents were at hand. <laughs> they were about to be back. He says, let your gentleness, he said to Yodia and Syntyche and to all the others, let your gentleness be known to everybody. The Lord's at the door. He's just about to come in. He's, he's almost back. You want to be found in this relationship? And this lack of relationship, treating this other person this way. You want to be found out here, these people that go at it like cats and dogs. And you this, and you this, and you this, and you this, and ever since, and you this, and you this. And I think, what if the Lord came right at that moment? What if the Lord came right then? Is that the way you want the Lord to find you? The Lord is at hand. You want Him to come back when you're doing this that you hope nobody would see? You want the Lord to come back when? We better think about it because the Lord's at hand. He's coming. And He's going to find us doing something. What's it going to be? He says, I hope when the Lord comes, you'll be treating each other with gentleness. With kindness, with love, you'll be of the same mind. He says in verse 6, And don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't worry about, he says, most things. But of course, I understand there are some things that you just can't help it. You really have to worry about them. Is that what he says? It's an absolute prohibition. He says, be careful or be anxious for nothing. Worry is absolutely forbidden. Ha, that's easy for you to say. 
What do you mean that's easy for me to say? I didn't say it. The Apostle Paul said it. Who was beaten in public? Who was thrown into the prison? Who was forced to leave town and leave behind a whole church of new believers who needed to be taught? Who went to Thessalonica and preached the gospel until they created a riot there? Who's in prison in chains in Rome writing this letter? That's the person that says, don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious. Worry is a sin. Worry is not simply a weakness that has to be overlooked. Worry is a sin. It's the sin of not trusting God. It's awful. You know, we have that hymn. We don't sing it much anymore. We used to have that or that chorus. Why worry when you can pray? Trust Jesus. He'll be your stay. And now we say, why pray when you can worry? (laughs) Worry first, and if all else fails, pray. Worry, manipulate, complain, cajole, and if all else fails, pray. Worry, why worry? What will worry do? It never keeps a trouble from overtaking you. It gives you indigestion and wakeful hours at night and fills with gloom the days, however fair and bright. It puts a frown upon the face and sharpness in the tone. We're unfit to live with others and unfit to live alone. Worry? Why worry? What can worry do? It never keeps a trouble from overtaking you. Pray? Why pray? What can praying do? Praying really changes things, arranges life anew, is good for your digestion, gives peaceful sleep at night, and fills the grayest, gloomiest days with rays of glowing light. It puts a smile upon your face, a love note in your tone, makes you fit to live with others. And fit to live alone. Pray. Why pray? What can praying do? It brings God down from heaven. To live and work with you. Even such a man as Mark Twain said. I am an old man. And have known my troubles. But most of them have never happened. Most people worry about things that never happen. Things that people worry about. Forty percent. This is a survey done at the University of Wisconsin. Things that never happen, 40%. Things over and past that couldn't be changed by all the worry in the world, 30%. Petty worries, small and significant, 10%. Needless health worries, 12%. Real legitimate worries, 8%. And if you're a Christian, you shouldn't even worry about those. Be anxious for nothing, the Lord says. The Lord says, trust me, trust me. All those thoughts and and concerns about what might happen, what are you supposed to do with them? You don't just blow them off. That's not the idea. What does he say to do? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. He says, pray. Let your thoughts drive you to prayer, not to worry, not to nail biting, not to nervousness. Not the loss of sleep to prayer. And the Lord tells us in the, in the book of First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, he says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That's how to pray. Prayer is talking with God. Like the Lord taught the disciples, our Father who art in heaven. That prayer, he tells us how to pray. That's prayer. Supplication is pleading, imploring the Lord. But he says with thanksgiving, thankfully. And even giving thanks sometimes in advance, even before you know the answer, because you know the Lord hears you and he's going to answer. We thank you in advance, Lord, 
that you're hearing us and you're going to provide this for us. In everything, he says, all the time. By prayer and supplication. I wish many Christian ministers would learn this and even missionaries and churches and parachurch organizations, I wish they would learn this. There is a place to let your request be made known. That place is given to us in Matthew chapter 6. It says, when you pray, enter into your closet, into your room, and shut the door and pray to your Father in heaven. Your Father in heaven who sees in secret will reward you openly. It doesn't say write a begging letter and send it to everybody with a bank account number at the bottom where they can send you a transfer and explain at the bottom of the letter very clearly how to make out a gift, annuity, a retirement, or a death benefit, or how to give all your finances basically to the preacher or to the church. Get on the radio and the television and start telling people. And my brother was telling me the other day about a program that comes on. You can get apparently here in the Bay Area that you don't go 15 seconds without hearing the word money. He gets it in there all the time. Begging preachers. Begging in quotation marks Christians who have a poor old bankrupt heavenly father who's forgotten them and who's too weak and too poor and too helpless to do anything to help them. So they got to go around and beg and cajole and tell make sure everybody knows what they need. Pray for me because I need this. And I'm trusting the Lord sort of, but mostly in all of you to give me this. <laughs> you know, it's a wonderful thing to be able to say, I just trust the Lord. I just trust the Lord. And not give any hints, not drop any hints. Not give any explanations, not give any list of things you'd like to have or things you need to just trust the Lord. Pray, trust the Lord, let him provide. He can do it. I can say to the honor and the glory of the Lord, my wife and I since 1980 have been serving the Lord. That was the last time when we left the Air Force. And last time we got a regular paycheck, you might say. 1980, this is 2005, we raised seven children. We never asked anyone for anything, and I'm not doing it now. Don't you dare think I am. I have all in the bound, just like the apostle said. The Lord takes good care of me. The Lord takes good care of us. He never failed us. We never made a contract with anybody. We never had to ask anybody for anything. We ask our Heavenly Father. It's a wonderful thing when you know God is the only one in the world who knows what your needs are, and he provides it. I wouldn't come down from that mountaintop to beg on the streets and ask people to give me things when I have a heavenly father. And you know what? You have that same heavenly father. And he cares about everything that you need. He knows when you need peace. He knows when you need a night's sleep. He knows when you need relief. He knows everything that you need. He said, be careful for nothing. You can trust him with everything. Everything. And if you do, and you let your request be made known to God. That doesn't mean as Christians that we don't have prayer requests with one another. But we're talking here about a, a separate thing. You let your request be made known to God and God answers you. Isn't that wonderful? You have the peace of God which passes all understanding. To keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. To keep them. That word is guard. Like a soldier guarding a door. That's that word. Keep. That's what it really means. It'll guard, it'll garrison your heart. Guard it. 
and your mind against all the things that people worry and fret about. If you're a person who's given to worry, I'm going to give you the same advice you got right here in front of you, but I'm just going to say it again. Stop worrying. Confess it as a sin and trust God. God is bigger than your problems. And God is smarter than you about how to solve them. And God is richer than you and He has more contacts than you do. Trust Him. He never made a mistake. Trust Him. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then he says, finally, which is a way of saying in verse 8, and we're not through talking about this problem with the thoughts yet, he says, with your mind, because not only do we worry about things that we shouldn't, we think about a lot of other things. We occupy our mind with a lot of other things that we shouldn't occupy them with. And this is where the real battle is. And if you go out and, and look in the, in the real Christian world, you'll find other servants of the, of the Lord in other places who are saying the same thing. They're concerned about the battle for the mind. There is a constant bombardment in the educational system, the society around us, the mass media. They're continually bombarding us and telling us what to think and how to evaluate and what to feel. And there's so many things to think about. That don't make it here. This is a checklist. A checklist. You want to have peace of mind? And occupy your mind with the right things. Because it's just like a computer in this sense. Garbage in, garbage out. There There are things in this world and in the entertainment world that you should never allow into your mind. You need a good doorkeeper on your mind. You need a bouncer. You know one? I do. It's right here. It's a great big bouncer in verse 8. He says, now to get in here, he stands at your mind's door and he says, to get in here, it's got to be eight things on this checklist. It's got to be true. It's got to be honest. Some versions use a different word, but you, you know what we're saying. It says noble in some other versions. It's got to be just or righteous. It's got to be pure, lovely, of good report. Not not just is it true, but is it of good report? Is it nice? Is it virtuous? Is it praiseworthy? Is it something that brings to mind praise? These are the things to think on. If it fails on any of those, you you shouldn't be turning it over and over in your mind. Just keep it out and say, oh, well, but you can't control your thoughts. You can't? Then why would the Lord tell us what to think about? Most of us don't like to. Most of us have little practice in doing it. But it is possible, he says here, think on these things. And the word he uses there, we translate it meditate, because the word is logizomai. It comes from the word logic. It means that, to turn it over logically, to, to think systematically about it, to dwell on it. This is what you're supposed to think about. This is not choosing what flies through your mind. You reject those things when they're not, they don't meet this list. But the things you allow to settle in and the things you think about, they have to be this way. Do you know Hudson Taylor, that man who was a missionary to China back in the 1800s? He wrote his, uh, his sister, who was back in Great Britain, he wrote her from China a letter warning her about reading novels I'm going to show you just how much Christianity's changed since then, about reading novels because they're not true. And he said, Dear sister, 
the first thing on the list in Philippians 4.8 is truth. Is a soap opera truth? Warning her about losing time with distracting thoughts from novels and fiction, things not true that were only invented to entertain people. He said, you have a lot better things to think about than that. The Lord has given us a whole world of better things to think about. You see, this is what the world does. It comes in and it occupies our minds with things that are not fruitful, things that are not edifying. And we learn words and we learn behaviors and we learn attitudes and responses and values. So many things from what's coming in in so many different ways in the world around us. Oh, and back then they didn't have theater and internet and DVD and all these things like we have today. Just imagine poor Hudson Taylor. What would he do if he lived in the 21st century? You see, we've become hardened. We just think, oh, no, that's just pure. People worry about all that kind of stuff. I'm big enough to handle that. See, the Lord says, be careful what you think about. Because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You become what you think about. And you dwell on it. And it affects you. Whether you want it to, whether you believe it will, or it should or not. It does. He said, think on these things. Meditate on these things. And you know what? If we spent more time thinking about things like the things that are on this list here, we wouldn't have time to think about a lot of other things. We wouldn't. And I'll tell you one thing that meets every single item on the checklist here. And it's not a thing. It's a person. I know someone who is true. I know someone who is noble. Honest. I know someone who is just. Righteous. I know someone who is pure and holy. Do you know that someone? I know someone who is lovely. Who is of good report. Never did anything except what was of good report. I know someone whose whole life is full of virtue. And someone who everything we know about him makes us praise him. And why would I want to go to the world and entertain myself with Spider-Man. When I can have the Lord Jesus Christ. My old grandmother, may she rest in peace, and she does because she's a believer. She lived 98 years in this world, and she told us many times when we were little boys, she said, don't spend so much time in comic books. She says, that's nothing in the world but the devil's imitation of the true heroes, the men and women of faith, and our Lord in the Bible. She said, that's enough for you. That's the way she was, and that's the way the old Christians used to be. But we let down our guard and we've let it all come in like a high tide, like a tsunami. It's just come in and rolled over us and filled up the world around us with so many things that don't meet the standard of God's Word. Finally, he says in verse 9, Those things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, admire and listen to them on a CD once in a while. Say amen to them. Now, I like for people to say amen. It lets me know you're awake. It lets me know that you're listening, that you're with me, that you agree. Hello. <laughs> but Paul said, do it. And now we're right back where we were last night. And I don't have time to go on, so you're going to get off the hook. Because my time is already gone. Adel's about to come up and take the microphone away from me. So you're going to get off tonight, but I'm going to tell you what, we're right back where we were last night. He said, all those things that you saw in me, that you heard in me, he says, 
You learned it from me. You received it from me. You heard it. You saw me live that way. You saw me when I came to Philippi. What did I do when I went to Philippi? I went out there and I preached the gospel to those women by the river. What did I do in Philippi? I spoke to that, that slave girl. She received Christ and those masters came after me and they beat me and they threw me into prison. And what did I do in Philippi? Did I worry in the prison? I praised God and sang hymns at midnight and an earthquake came and that Philippian jailer got saved. And what did we do? We preached the gospel to him and to his whole family. Lydia got saved. That girl got saved. That man got saved. Their families got saved. He said, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. He said, this is what I expect of you as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he said. Paul said, because he was an apostle. There aren't any today. I don't care who says they are one. He said, you do what you saw me do. You live like you saw me live. What you heard and saw in me, this is what I expect. Brethren, 3.17, be followers together of me. You have us for examples. And we're right back where we were last night. And he's not getting off of it because that's what true Christianity really is. That's what apostolic Christianity really is. The Lord is here among us again tonight, and he is still looking for the same thing he's always been looking for. What he said to those men on the Sea of Galilee, he says here tonight, he says, Come, follow me. Any takers? Any takers? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word which speaks so clearly to us. Forgive us for the sin of worry. Forgive us for not trusting you. Forgive us for forgetting to cast all of our care on you and leave it there. Forgive us for the times when we have not been willing to resolve conflicts with our brothers and sisters. Help us, Lord, to let this mind be in us. Help us to be of the same mind in the Lord. To be a church governed by the mind of Christ and the Word of God. And bless us, we pray. And those who need to come to you and commit themselves to you and follow you tonight and be followers of you and followers and imitators of the apostles. May they not wait one second without their name written in the book of life. May they not delay any longer. May tonight be the night when they can say, that day, that night, the Lord wrote my name in the book of life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.